Good evening, everyone. It's really nice to be back with you. Um, just me tonight representing my family. Uh, the little ones are kind of passing around some version of a cold between them, and that can go on for days and days at our house. So who knows when you'll see them again. But um, hopefully soon. They're doing okay. Nothing too serious, but just kind of feeling kind of crummy right now. And... I'm grateful I've been able to come out and study with you again in our study of Ecclesiastes. I appreciate Matt covering the class last week while we were traveling. And we're coming to chapter 10 tonight. If you are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, or if you're just familiar with how long one quarter of the year is, you can sense that we're coming to the close of this study, just a few more weeks in this great book together. It's been a really profitable study for me to be studying with you in this book. And we're going to jump right into chapter 10. Well, not directly into chapter 10, because we need to segue just a little bit to get our thoughts going. So, <clears throat> the closing of chapter 9... Um, ends with some uh, kind of a theme that the preacher introduces the, uh, the listener to here. And it's this concept of how powerful wisdom is, kind of those final verses of chapter 9. He talks about wisdom is, is better than, than some of these things, these things that seem pretty powerful. It's better than might. Might is like the very definition of power or something that's powerful. He says wisdom is better. It's better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. It's better than weapons of war. He is really wanting to hammer home how powerful wisdom is. And for those of us that are familiar with the scriptures, um, have, have studied this for a while, have come to see that to be proven true in our own lives, we say yes to someone maybe not familiar with that. Maybe that's a newer thought because wisdom is often quiet. It's often overlooked by others, as even mentioned in chapter 9. And so this could be a little surprising to someone hearing like, well, wisdom, just say the, the rightly spoken word is more powerful than might or someone very brash and yelling, something like that. And so then he kind of goes in the chapter 9, um, sorry, chapter 10, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the power of folly. Uh, those, are, those are my words here, kind of the theme that he's giving us in these first few verses. But in verses 1 through 3, I'll read it and then consider this question. What does this tell us about the power of folly, kind of the other side of the coin from the end of chapter 9? Starting in verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So, what's this tell us about the power of folly, this opposite concept of wisdom. What do you see in those verses? It stinks. It stinks. 
Yeah, it's not, a, it's not an alluring power, that's for sure, but it is overpowering in some ways, for sure. What other thoughts there? It has other consequences. Tell us what, you, what you're referencing there, Bruce. Well, you go back to Joshua and look at Achan. You look at Bathsheba. You look at Doeg. Good name others. Well, what they did had a, an effective infection to other people. You know, when you talk about David's heart, you're talking about his intelligence and his con uh, conscience and his will. It involved all three of those in his case. Uh, he knew she was married. Uh, he appealed to his lust and he used his will uh, to cascade sin, to murder, uh, to betrayal, to all sorts of, of evil. And, of course, Achan and, and Doeg, who uh, brought evil throughout uh, Israel. So if we're not smart about things, uh, those things that we do in front of other people or those things that we do that will affect people uh, can have a disastrous and unfathomable effect on others. That's well said. Just as... At the end of chapter 9, I think he's, um, the preacher gives this picture of this, I think this attack and this, this city that's been besieged and through wisdom, the city is able to resist it. But folly has the same ability to have these huge consequences. You know, in that other example, that's a good consequence. They're able to repel the invaders because of the wise counsel that they, that they hear. Uh, and yet... In the examples you've given, yeah, the folly has disastrous consequences. Another observation I might make about this is uh, flies are very tiny. They're small. And, and they, even though they're small, they can make a fair amount of oil stink. And in the same manner, just a little foolishness can mess up a whole lot of wisdom. Yeah, I mean, it is, we, we see th these things, wisdom and folly or foolishness, as dad says, um, like it's two sides of the coin, but here it's really expressed that, it, oh, it's just a little bit of foolishness and it will overpower a lot of wisdom, in fact. And so there is a sense in which folly is more powerful than wisdom. Now, it's not better, it's not more valuable, but it can overpower it in certain ways. And we've, we've talked, I think, a little bit about how that can be. You think of the idea of, of a good name. You know, it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of dedication to develop a good name. But in a split second of an unwise decision, <coughs> that can be trumbled away. Same thing with trust. You know, it, it takes, a, you know, take time to build up trust but in a split instance, you can decimate it by an unwise decision. Yeah. The severity of the consequences, but also the speed, right? Like you said, in an instant almost, you can alter the course you were on, the course your reputation was on. So folly is really not meant to be messed with here. And there seems to be this spectrum that you can be almost just regular, you could choose to be wise about something, 
It's possible to slide into foolishness as well, and that can be disastrous. And he really wants to drive that home that just a little bit can ruin something that was wonderful, wisdom and honor, your reputation, your honor, your good name. That wisdom will kind of guide you to the right. Foolishness is guiding you to the left. And if you are a fool, it says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. People can tell when we're foolish as well. It's apparent to other people. Maybe we are not literally saying the words to them, but they can see us and our actions. We will be doing foolish things if we think foolishly. And so this chapter is going to, in, in many ways, I think, encourage us not to be foolish, not to participate in folly, even though it seems like, and we're going to get to this in, in a second here, he's going to offer up in a few verses why it might seem to you that it doesn't matter. Wise, foolish, outcomes aren't dictated by either way, so who cares, just live how you want to live. He will address that supposed argument in a minute, but he's really laying the foundation early on that foolishness is a big problem and it's one to be avoided. But before he gets to that, we kind of get to verse 4, which is tacked on. It's just right there in this little kind of bit of poetic wisdom he gives us to open chapter 10. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Uh, does, how does this fit in? Then if we're saying the preacher is trying to tell us wisdom, here's how powerful it can be when used right. And foolishness, here is how devastating it can be when it, when it rears its ugly head. And then he gives, by the way, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. How does that fit in to this conversation as he's, as he's speaking to the listener and saying, you have a choice, wisdom or foolishness, which will you choose? And while you're thinking about that, let's talk about the ruler and him being mad at you and how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you read that? How do you interpret that? What, is, what would the preacher like us to, to take from that? Uh, stand firm in what you believe in and try to put your guard up against it, I guess. It's a better way, maybe. Okay. But, I mean, we can see crazy stuff going on around us all the time. You just have to stand firm and not let it absorb you and pull you in, if that makes sense. I think I'm understanding what you're saying. Is a possible explanation of an encouragement to stand firm when things are coming up against you that... Stand firm in your wise calmness and don't be affected by these things. Definitely possible. Any other thoughts that people might have here? Yeah, Mitch, I'll bring it over to you. I think a natural reaction when someone temper rises against you is to also get heated. Right? That's the natural reaction is to mirror whatever emotion is being displayed to you. Um, but 
in this case, that could get you killed, right? If, you, if your temper rises against the king, he'll just eliminate you. Um, where if you remain calm, then the king may, may calm down and, and see your position as not being threatening against the king, but whatever you know, your position may actually be. Yeah, and another good explanation potentially there, and one he's made before, right? That if the king, like be careful how you respond to the king because who gets to tell the king, what are you doing? Like nobody. And so there's consequences if you kind of buck up against the king. And so if he is, like you said, if he is acting in anger, rising in anger towards you, don't, don't respond in kind because very practically that can have some adverse outcomes for you. For sure, maybe so. Here, here's a question. In this example, if the, if the king is coming against you in this example, when, when you think about that, who's in the wrong in, in that example? Like as you put yourself in that hypothetical, is the king wrong to be coming against you or is he coming against you because you've done something wrong? It's not indicated in the passage, right? He's just saying, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place. But depending how we would view that situation, that could be pretty different. If I've been a fool, if I'm acting foolish, and the ruler now is rising in anger against me, um, it, it's wise for me not to rise up, to stay in my place, to receive what the king would be bringing down upon me and to get out of my foolishness, right? If the king is incorrect and he's angry with me, it's still wise for me to stay in my place, not rise up against him because, one, the king has great ability to bring harm against you and for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. That's not the first time in scripture, especially if we've been reading from the start of the book that we have today, that we've heard some of those concepts. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger in the Proverbs. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Again, in Proverbs, that's in chapter 25. So oftentimes, Solomon would talk about this, that there's times where the king will be treating you in a certain way. And the wise thing to do here, whether you deserve it, whether you don't deserve it, is to have, be calm, to have soft response, to have long forbearance with the ruler, because that's how you get through that. That's how you persuade them. That's how you turn away anger, possibly. Um, it's, in, it's interesting here. I'm not going to say it's out of place, Nothing in scripture is out of place, but it's just interestingly tacked on as kind of an example, maybe to apply some of the things he's just recently been sharing with us. Any other thoughts on verse four before we'll shift our mindset just a bit as we go to the next few verses here? So five through seven. Chapter 10 is full of... Um, recalled thoughts and themes. Um, again, we've already just talked about the one where he says, hey, when the ruler is treating you harshly, remember, be careful how you handle that. We've already addressed that. And five through seven, again, it's not a new concept um, for Solomon here. What is the problem? What's the problem he's presenting here? I'll read it and you give it back to me in 
in your words, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. The rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What is he saying there? What's the problem? What's the evil? He likes that expression, right? When he sees something, he says, I see something not working the way it's supposed to. That's an evil. He said, this is an evil I've seen. What is it in your words? Things are backwards. Yeah, there, there seem to be, especially speaking of rulers, there's people that are ruling that don't seem like they should be ruling. There's people that look like they could be ruling and they're in a really low place. They have no access. They have, they're not in charge of anything. And so this is, this is evil. This is wrong. So, um, you know, that tacks on to verse four pretty well, especially if, hey, when the ruler rises up against you, stay calm. Especially stay calm when you think like you're going to not want to when you really think about who that ruler might be. And when you look at his actions and you say, I don't even think he should be in charge. He shouldn't even be in a position to be rising up against me in anger. This guy is, this is the wrong guy. And he says, but that's an evil. And again, under the sun, that expression. So again, he's, and this is not new. We've talked about this before, that rulers, the people that are in charge, that are supposed to be giving justice, that are supposed to be making sure the rest of us are doing what's right, they themselves are just kind of doing whatever they want. And he's saying, this, this is how it seems to work. I look around, there's this evil that I see here on earth, that the wrong people are in charge. They're not doing what they're supposed to be. When you hear that, how does that make you feel? Do you, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Do you, is it depressing? Is it, um, I was going to say, is it encouraging? I don't know why no one would say that's encouraging. It feels incredibly real, even today, that we would say, yeah, I've been in an experience. So we can go as big or as small as you want with that concept, right? You can go to some, a global power ruler and be like, yeah, I, I don't feel like he or she or they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You can go to your boss at work and you're like, I don't feel like they know what they're doing here and it's really hard to submit to even their authority. You know, we see that often and it rings pretty true to us. In some ways, maybe that is encouraging. The, the, it is encouraging to me, at least, when the Bible is proven to be true. Even about disappointing facts about the earth. You know, when, when Jesus says, hey, they hated me first, so they are going to hate you. That doesn't necessarily make the pain of the world hating you go away. But there is some comfort when you think, and Jesus was right, he told, me, he told me this would happen. It's still hard. It's still hard to deal with the world treating me this way. And yet, I'm comforted knowing that Jesus knew this was coming. And here you see Solomon saying, hey, this is how it works here. So again, just be ready for it. And yet, don't throw your hands up and then say, well, none of this matters then. 
because the, the, the kings, they don't know what they're doing. They're not wise. They seem to be pretty foolish. And the wise people are kind of like down in the dirt and they don't have anything. So I'm, I'm just going to be foolish because maybe I'll be a king if I'm foolish. And if I'm wise, it seems to be pretty terrible to be wise. He's going to put a stop to that in the verses coming up real quick. Because even though we'll see, yes, there are those in power. This is not a universal truth. Everyone in power in his day and our day is not foolish 100% of the time, is not terrible at what they're doing, is not abusing their authority at all points. That's not the case. This is kind of a truism that we are as men and women inclined to be foolish no matter who we are, no matter what level of authority we've been granted. But we should not be allured by the possibility of just throwing up our hands and saying, well, none of this matters then, right? Because he's going to give us some more truisms. The next few verses, just like right out of Proverbs, they would read. And some of these, I mean, you probably people not familiar with the scriptures would just bet their last dollar if you just said, hey, who wrote this? They'd be like, oh, this must be Shakespeare. It's so like succinctly and perfectly said, some of these verses, uh, 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. This one's, this one's great. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. That is a great little nugget of wisdom there. Uh, what do those verses teach you about wisdom? I like, y'all are laughing. I like that serpent verse. I think it's great. trying to move your neighbor's fence. But wisdom comes from, first of all, uh, doing what is right, but second of all, being wise in what you do. You know, uh, if you sharpen the axe, cutting wood's a lot better. If you're careful in a stone quarry as to uh, how you cut the stone and where it's going to fall and, and uh, where you are in relationship to that, then it will be... Uh, much easier and safer. And I think what he's saying here is the same wisdom that we use uh, in our minds to make judgments and decisions, we need to use in our daily life, uh, particularly when we're doing uh, things that can endanger us. And you see uh, people doing, uh, acting foolishly, uh, chasing, uh, chasing bears and uh, doing all sorts of things which we would say you're going to get killed, and many of them do. Uh, but had they used wisdom in this life, which Solomon describes as a very difficult one to begin with, but it's also a dangerous one uh, to add to that in some cases. That's well said. This world, even under the sun, uh, there's there it's it has pits in it and it has heavy rocks and big pieces of wood and it's got snakes in it and if we throw up our hands and are like 
it doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter how I choose to do things because I look at the rulers. They do whatever they want to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Someone says, well, then you very likely will fall into a big pit or a rock's going to fall on you or you're going to use bad tools chopping down a tree and you might knock it over on yourself or you might get bitten by a snake because you think you can just grab it whenever you feel like he's just giving us these practical examples that I think, especially back then, these people would be like, well, yeah. Even using the word wisdom for how we'd approach some of these things, like we probably don't even use the word wisdom for this. This is what we call common sense. Like that you be safe around pits and around heavy things and around dangerous creatures. But he is saying here, you need to still be wise, not just because of these literal things that life under the sun offers, but... Wisdom will still protect you. Like It can still get worse if you just live your life foolishly and without any care for wisdom, without any care for doing what is sound, for what is wise. We can harm ourselves in a large degree. Any other thoughts from 8 through 11 there? Then we'll go forward a little bit here. Uh, the next few verses, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of its talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city." So here, again, similar concepts, again, a little less. Now we're kind of talking a little bit more like relationally or socially. If you are just foolish, you're going to have a hard time interacting with people even, right? The lips of a fool consume him, whereas the wise man, his mouth wins him favor. So, yeah, again, I keep going back to verse 5. Yes, you may see the rulers doing what they will. They're making decisions. It doesn't look like they have a, any interest in being wise or foolish. They don't seem to think about it. But you should because being wise will protect you. And being wise can win you some favor still. There's still value in it, no matter what it might seem like at times when you see injustice or when you see rulers, the people that you would want to look up to, the ones you would want to pattern your life after. So don't, he's saying, don't do that. Still just choose wisdom because, and he's giving us a list of ways that it is better. Verses 12 through 15, as we're kind of talking about wise words or foolish words, that's kind of the concept here. And finally, the toil of a fool wearies him. What are your thoughts with any of those verses? And especially like, how would you apply that today? Do you, do you find it applicable today in a way that you'd say, yeah, this is important and I'd want to tell other people about this? What do you think about these verses? Have you ever found yourself consumed by a foolish word and wished, I wish I had not said that and I feel like I'm on a weird path now that I did not want to be on and that you're just, backtracking and it may be harming relationships and spending a lot of effort just to rebuild things all because of foolish words because in that moment we did not think wisdom was very valuable to pursue we think i'll just say whatever i'd like to say in this moment maybe subconsciously because wisdom in that moment doesn't seem very valuable 
to us. Solomon seems to really want us to remember, no, 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 this stuff is important. This is valuable. It can help you in your life, in your physical life, and of course, in what's to come as we go a few chapters ahead. Well, let's move forward then, kind of to the next section. And we may spend a little more time here. Um, 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. How does this apply to us today? That can be to us in this room. That can be just to anyone today. There may still be people that have kings. And I don't think the only application here is, hey, it's really great when you have a good king. And I'm sorry if you have a bad one. And that's all he's trying to say here. What do you take from this? this these verses about the king that's a child and the king that's a son of nobility, as he puts it. You would think of the aspect of a king as a child, they would not have that knowledge and, and wisdom to help to properly guide and lead somebody. And a, a child is somebody that himself still needs to be led. So the aspect of being led by a child is, you know, would be, would be the aspect of us, you know, not being, not being led properly, but then also the, the being like, like one of nobility, they tend to be ones that we would probably use the terminology more of being spoiled and things of that nature, and, and they wouldn't actually be looking after the best interest of the people. Okay. Mitch, you had something too? See, okay. Can you get Carrie back there, David? Okay. I think the the idea of the king being a child uh, is not talking about their youth necessarily. I think uh, the comparison between the child and then the son of a noble is the idea of, of uh, accepting and fulfilling their responsibilities. Um, you see in the lineage of the Jews that Josiah was eight years old and yet he was still a responsible king who was looking after the benefit and the well-being of his people. And, and that was right, right? That was good. That was a blessing to the land. Um, but when you have kings like Ahab, like Rehoboam, that are just, you know, throwing a party or for whatever reason, then, uh, you know, that sense of responsibility is gone. All the resources of the kingdom are wasted on a king who's just squandering them for his own benefit and his own gain. Yeah, well said. Gary. Um, I think we need to look beyond king and nation and broaden it to the concept of leadership. That a good leader is going to think strategically, is going to think with wisdom and act with wisdom and not fly off emotionally and reason with wisdom and think how can I take whoever I'm leading, whether it's a nation a business, the church, how can I take this group of people to where I feel like they need to go? And how can I get them behind me and help us all work together to get to that common goal? That's what I see here. 
as far as the wisdom of a king versus the foolishness of a lad. Oh, I like that. That is well said. Just to tie in with both of those things, uh, Solomon uh, had also said that strong drink is not for kings, lest they uh, forget what they've written. I may have misquoted that. My brain's not working. But also gluttony. When you have kings who are more attentive to their own personal needs, and especially gluttony, it's not a very healthy thing, nor is it, is it a good example. And so in the New Testament, when we are uh, commanded to have sober minds, that helps us in, in discerning from good and evil. Uh, when we're told to be content with the things that we have, uh, it lets us not fade into this idea that Solomon and, and New Testament writers talk, particularly Paul, about idleness to the Thessalonians. Uh, it, it has a great impact not only for kings, because we want our kings to be healthy so they can make good decisions, but we don't want them to be uh, prone to alcohol because then they don't make good decisions. But we also have to learn that because we too are priests. We are leaders uh, in the kingdom, as Carrie said. And so uh, these things are what God is looking for, those who are wise and discerning, those who watch their steps in accordance to God. And when you have a king like this, which Israel had very few of them, uh, you're blessed. Really good thoughts from everyone. I mean, it's a rich passage. There's a lot to... There's a lot to consider there. The, the word child is not, it's not often used in a negative way, I think, in Scripture. It's, of, it's often used like, of the children of Israel, just to represent a, a very dependent person, if not literally just a young person, someone that's dependent on someone else. And in many times, it's used in a way that to show kind of an innocence and a, and a specialness about something or a group of people. We use the word children or child in Scripture. In, in this example, it's, it's kind of a dig at this person. You have one who is a child and one who is a son of nobility. You know, they, they, these, these people are probably the same age. You know, we use the word child and son interchangeably. They could be, they could be the same thing. You'd have a, a boy who's the same age, and you'd be correct. The father would say, this is my son, this is my child. Both are correct. But you have one in that you know, this is a child of the king because he acts like a child. He doesn't have impulse control. He doesn't think about others. He doesn't, he's not trying to lead anyone. He just wants his own stuff. And then you have a son of nobility that is trying to do things properly and the right way. Um, when I read this, I thought, I think most of us in this room would consider ourselves to be children of a king. And so would we say, in this sense of the word, are we children or are we sons and daughters of nobility when it comes to how we lead our lives? Do we act just like kids, children that don't care about what's right? We kind of just want what's best for us because that's all our little attention span can kind of grasp at the moment and we just want things that make us happy or are we 
real sons and daughters of the king, really on board with the noble mission that the king has, and we're carrying that out as well. Here the preacher says, hey, nations prosper when they have that kind of leader. When they have that kind of leadership, things are better. When they have the former, just this kind of man-child who's just thinking about himself, not about others, not about what's wise, not about what's right, he says, woe to you, land. It's, it's going to be a disaster. We're thinking about in our own lives what kind of child or son and daughter are we? And kind of in our final minutes here, we'll kind of move towards the end of this chapter 10. Um, most of this chapter is very uh, poetic. So it doesn't, it's, um, it's kind of more in the poetic side of things rather than just the prose, if you want to use that term, of other chapters. And the rest of this chapter will carry through here. 18 and 19, uh, interesting verses. And interested to hear what you think about them. Through 18 and 19, right? Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. And wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. What, what do you feel when you read that? Other than, I gotta go get some money. Solomon just told me... How to solve all my problems. I mean, it, he literally says the words, money answers everything right there. What could that possibly mean? I mean, or does it, is he just telling us, is he taking us behind the curtain saying, yeah, just get more money and that will answer everything. Seems obvious. Why do I have to explain it to you? Money answers everything. What do, what do you think? Yeah, Derek. My impression of verse 19, the last words of verse 19, is that money is the key to happiness, or wealth is the key to happiness, and without wealth, we cannot enjoy life under the sun. Okay. So, yeah, he is, you know, as he compares the verse 18 and 19... Like you've got the roof sinking in, you've got this house is leaking, and then it goes to 19, and close like wealth is able to stave off some of those things. Derek's pointing out. So life under the sun made much easier through wealth. He's already connected the dots somewhat on wisdom and wealth to some degree in the book and how they are inexorable to a point. So definitely could be could be an answer there. Other thoughts about 18 and 19 and money making all your problems go away. Yeah, Charmin. I was kind of thinking of like the ants. They work hard. They can take care of their the whole colony. They're, if you don't take care of your if you don't work hard, you can't take care of your house. It's going to fall in. I mean, it's not that it, money brings you happiness per se, but it it does help in life. And, and you work hard, you can take care of things. And I don't know if that's what it's talking about, but that's just kind of what came to mind. Okay, so connecting money, money being the result of work. So really that it is the evidence that work has happened. And so that's really 
uh, key to 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 having some happiness. Absolutely, I think. Oh, yeah, Carrie. And I'm not the best at this kind of language, poetry, whatever. But I almost think it's, um, I won't say sarcastic, but you have all these problems. Um, the rafters are sagging. The house is leaking. Men eat. They get drunk with wine. And you have your problems. Just throw money at it. Because what do we do? If something's broken. Something doesn't work right. We'll throw money at it try to fix it. And money doesn't always solve the problem. That's the way I was looking at it. No, I think that that is one of the kind of in when I when I looked at commentators and, and others to see like what what do they interpret. That's definitely one that I found that um, I think Paul Earnhardt kind of takes that slant on that. This is almost like a, a quote of like those living in the house that's leaking on them. And they're just like, oh, some bread and some wine and, you know, money, everything. There's blind to kind of what's actually happening and thinking like, we'll just, we'll just throw some money at this. So definitely could be. And, and that's a view held by some. Yeah, Chris. Uh, I, I don't know that I have the answer to what this means exactly, but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> uh, it seems like verse 18 is about things that you could do to prevent much bigger things from going wrong. If you were to be steadfast, if you knew, hey, uh, I've seen this before. If I fix this now, it won't turn into this other thing. Um, and then you compare, uh, and then verse 19, a feast is made for laughter and the wine makes merry. So I think of those who are not steadfast and have to, they end up paying more to fix something when it is, it's a bigger deal. Um, and those who like to party rather than, you know, just uh, eat normally and um, that uh, at the end of the day, those people don't have as much money. Maybe that's, that's kind of the answer is at the end of the day, it's, it's the wise who ends up with the money, who, who ends up having more because they didn't have to spend it on these other frivolous things. Maybe it could be. Janita, did you have something? The words sloth and indolence are synonyms for laziness. So your roof is going to sink in if you're lazy and you don't get busy and repair it when it uh, has first signs that it needs to be fixed. Same way with the house leaks. If you let it go, then you your problems only get bigger. Yeah, I mean, it could be. There, there's so much here, and it is, it's very classic Solomon to give us part of it where, like, we totally see that, yeah, if you're lazy, your house is going to get run down, and you're going to have problems. And, and then it's still very Solomon as well to just say something where, like, ah, is that what you mean? I'm trying to follow you here. It's just kind of interesting. There are a lot of problems that can be solved with money. For instance, if your roof is leaking, you can pay someone to fix it. If you need bread or wine, you can go buy it. But it's the the uh, the more weightier problems, the problems of um, the purpose of life, how we relate to other people, that more important things that cannot be solved with money in the end. Very true. Very true. And I think we would all say this is not a universal 
as I joked at the beginning, right? Yeah, money is really just the answer. That's the big reveal of Ecclesiastes is get more money. In fact, we, we've chapters ago talked about how that attitude, how disastrous and destructive that can be. I'll share my thoughts for whatever they're worth on these verses here before we close. Um, I too kind of looked at verse 18 and, and saw the laziness of that, that the lazy person, the one that doesn't work, everything starts to break down around them. And yet the things in verse 19, none of these things can you just go get somewhere. You have to make bread. You have to make wine. And you have to go make money somewhere. Like the person who is working is someone that has those things, right? They, whether they've made it themselves, you know, those you don't go pick bread just up off the ground or just go scoop wine up out of a puddle. Like you have to make those things. And so I, I kind of read this as a contrast that, uh, you know, of laziness and work. And the wise person is working and they have these things. And then they have bread when it's the time for feasting. They have wine for that, and they have money when they need money to use for other things as well. Uh, interestingly worded, as Solomon often does for us, but great comments tonight on that and, and all the rest of the chapter. Really glad to be back with everyone in our study here. We'll have a, a brief few minutes before we uh, continue with the rest of our service tonight. <laughs>